And I was just like, you know, the narrative is that we don't get married or we don't stay married. And I was just like, I need to change this. I need somewhere where women can come and feel safe. And at that time, I didn't realize that that was like really my objective, but I knew that I wanted to open a store where Black women could come. You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews-Okome. So let's get started. Hey, hey guys, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to July. I, for one, cannot believe that it is already the second half of the year. I mean, it is time to get all the way in gear. We have been, we have been focused, especially if you have been, you know, doing the Go Get Action Plan, the 12-week sprint process that I teach you all about. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's also time to just do a refresh, to kind of sit back and look at what you did in the first half of the year and decide, all right, you know, what went well, what didn't go well? I know for me, I'm looking at that. I think a lot, things just move really fast for me this year. And so sometimes the things that I set out to do by the time I looked up, it was a whole new month. So I'm making sure that doesn't happen in this second half of the year. So it's okay when things don't go according to plan or you didn't meet every single goal that you meant to, but make sure you take inventory of what you did, what worked, what didn't, so that you can really, really just improve in the second half of the year. So those are my thoughts on just entering July. Also, I want to hear more from you. So do me a favor. I want to start including your questions, literally your voice, your questions in these episodes. So record a voice note with your question and send it to hi at sidehustlepro.co. That's .co, no com. Um, you can send it from an anonymous email if you want. Just send the question to hi at sidehustlepro.co. Let me know what you want to know about business, about side hustling, about podcasting, you name it. All right. All right. So now let's get into the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Andrea Pater Campbell, founder and head designer of Pantora Bridal, Pantora Mini, and the Andrea Campbell Collection. Andrea actually took her first step towards fashion at the age of 12 years old. Yes, I think that is an all-time record for a side hustle pro guest. She created the name Pantora in preparation for admission to the high school of fashion industries. Then she later graduated and attended the famed Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. She went the corporate route at first, holding several corporate designer positions as she ran her design business on the side. And in 2013, armed with her sharp negotiation skills and just sheer determination, Andrea convinced landlords to take a chance on her and was able to open the Pantora Bridal Showroom. The road since wasn't always easy, but Andrea never wavered. Her mission to represent the underrepresented in mainstream bridal led the Pantora brand to develop a cult following and be carried by several retailers nationally. Let's get right into Andrea's conversation. So, welcome, welcome to the guest chair, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Listen, thank you for being here. And you have such a phenomenal reputation for creating one-of-a-kind bridal gowns. I am a fan. I see your gowns. I know people who have worn your gowns and just looked amazing. When did you first become interested in the fashion industry? I became interested in the fashion industry at around 12 years old, like okay. 11, 12. I was in a school called Crown School for Law and Journalism, and I discovered a school called the High School of Fashion Industries, and I decided that is where I'm going to go, and no one could talk me out of it since then. So... That high school, is that a New York high school? I feel like that sounds familiar. It is a New York high school. I feel like people know that when it's like a trade school. Yeah. Like, yeah, definitely a New York thing. So how was that experience? Were you actually making things in high school, making clothing? I was. I was actually making clothing in junior high. And we had this thing called the house system. It's almost like Harry Potter where, you know, how they have like Gryffindor and like the houses. Uh-huh. We had we had that kind of a thing in junior high. And our responsibility was to be of benefit to our community as well as a benefit to each other. And we were able to win by doing those things. So we created like um, a fashion show and I was the designer for the fashion show and we sold tickets and I made book bags out of bandanas and skirts out of bandanas. <laughs> and, and I raised money for the school. And then I realized, oh, I can raise money for myself too. And so I started to like sell them and like give 
half the money to the school and then keep half the money for myself to like buy more bandanas. It was like absolutely ridiculous. But I taught myself how to sew in junior high and um, I went to high school and they refined my skills a little bit. Okay. Okay. So was that your first entrepreneurial endeavor selling these bandanas? Yes. I never looked at it like that, but yes. That is so funny. And was this the family members or were you actually setting up a table, you know, vending places? No, so I wore mine and then I was like collecting everyone's three three to five dollars because I remember the price it was three dollars if you wanted one color and five dollars if you wanted it to be reversible. So if you wanted the back of the book bag to be blue and the other side to be yellow, you had to give me more money. But <laughs> listen, I'm loving all of this. I'm loving all of this. And you're just reminding me of a time when like, I don't know. You just had me get a flashback to when, like, you know, those handkerchief bandanas with, like, the studs was, like, a Mm -hmm. thing. (laughs) Yes. So now, all right, you've had real-life industry experience from the time of junior high school. That is so impressive. So what was your career path after high school? So I actually, in high school, I was interning for um, a company called Birnbaum & Bullock, which is a bridal company. So that was, like, my first deep dive into bridal. And um, I was interning with Donna Rico, which is like a women's ready-to-wear company. I graduated high school and went to FIT. And while I was in FIT, I had internships, but I also worked as a teacher, a fashion teacher. And I did that for elementary school to junior high school students. And then I went away and taught at the Madeira School, which is like this really ritzy school in um, Madeira, Virginia. Virginia. And I taught fashion there for the summer. So during my college experience, like I I was mainly a teacher and I worked for myself. So I always worked for myself. I started Pantor when I was in high school. I created the name when I was 12, but I started my business as a sophomore or junior. That that is a first for Side Hustle Pro. You you are setting records like you are the first person that I've heard of that started their business at 12 what what did you think it would be at 12 was it focused on bridal at that point no I just wanted to make things so at 12 I was I was actually modeling um when I was 12 and obviously like I sized out of it like I didn't get much taller um but I was so much more interested in the construction of the clothing I would go to fashion shows and I would I would want to be under the designers. Like, I just want to, I want to hang out with the designers. I don't want to be around the models. Um, When it was time to undress, I'm the one collecting clothes because I really want to see them. And it wasn't really bridal related. It was just, I just want to be around clothing. You know, what's really interesting to me, you're, you're a living testament of how important it is to let kids explore and truly invest time in what they're interested in. Because imagine if, I don't know what your parents were like, I don't know what your family support system was like, but imagine if they were like, okay, that's cute, but you're going where for college? You know, FIT is the Fashion Institute of Technology. So, um, you know, most people, when they say they're going to FIT, you know they're focused. Like they are truly buckling down on the fashion route. While my parents are super supportive and they pretty much have always been that way, their support has changed over the years okay. because as a 12 year old again I was I was in a school called Crown School for Law and Journalism. <laughs> That's the school my sister went to. My mom said I talk too much and I should be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the that's the career path she had me on. And uh-huh. I have an older sister who is very different. I had a really great role model, but she's a different type of smart. And she was always like setting the path. So she went to Brooklyn Tech High School. And my mom was like, you're going to go to a specialized high school because that's what we, we have in New York is like these specialized high schools. And I remember going to take the test. And my mom's like, do your best. We're aiming for Stuyvesant or Brooklyn Tech. And I'm like, I'm aiming for fashion industry. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember sitting down and taking the test and halfway in, I go, I'm going to get in and I don't want to go. And so I made like this conscious decision and I said, I'm charlieing out the rest of the test. I'm done. Mm. And I remember getting home and my mom goes, how was it? And I'm like, I tried my best. And I'm like, when I tell you, I don't lie to my parents. It's just, it had just been one of those things that my sister and I never did as children. Like we didn't ever feel like we had to lie, but we also didn't do anything worth lying about. (laughs) So I just felt really guilty, but I kept that with me for a while because I knew how my parents were, especially my mom. When it came to even getting into junior high schools, I wanted to go to a school called Philippa Schuyler. And I got in, but my mom did not tell me. She gave me the acceptance letter maybe on the first day of school 
to crown school on journalism. <laughs> I thought that I didn't get in. And, you know, parents have a way of derailing you. Ah. And, you know, That's I'm so very funny. That It's like junior yeah. high school. And she, <laughs> she's like, yeah. no, no, you got to go to this one. And, and my sister went to that school. So that's why she wanted me to follow my, my sister's footsteps. Mm-hmm. And I get it to a degree because they want what's best for you. But sometimes like children have a way of knowing what's best for them. I, I and, believe so. too. Yeah. Well, you know. It, it, it's tricky. I'm not a parent and, and I don't know what that must be like when you just want the best for your child and, and you only know what is in your brain as the best. Like you haven't experienced these high schools half the time and you're just listening to, to what you've researched and mm-hmm. and you're trying to do your best. But that is really funny. And by the way, I went to Bronx Science. So I... <laughs> See, look at that. One of the three. <laughs> One of the three. And it's so funny because, you know, Brooklyn people are like, we got to go to Stuyvesant or, or Brooklyn Tech. And Bronx people were like, we, we're not going all the way to Brooklyn. So <laughs> Stuyvesant or the Bronx, or Bronx Science. You know, I, she always says, I'm so happy that I kind of let you do your thing. Yeah. But I think she often forgets that she also tried to stagnate, stagnate me a little bit, too. Right, right, um, right, right. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up, that your path wasn't necessarily just straight. Yeah, no. So while you were in college, always interning, you know, working, then what happened next? What happened after you got out? Did you go full time with Pantora Bridal? Um, I went corporate, but just to like clear that up, I was always working full-time Pantora Bridal. Like the the energy that 20 year olds have, I I can't compete with anymore. (laughs) I was going to school full-time, um, but I worked my schedule so that I could be on campus. Like I would take all my classes on two days and then I would do my internships, but I would work on Pantora at least six to 10 hours a day Wow! while I was in college. So it's like, you know, I didn't sleep, but I didn't know I was missing sleep. (laughs) Once I graduated college, I worked for a few companies full-time, a few corporate companies. I worked for a company called Versailles where I was, they threw me into a head designer position, which um, gets interesting when you don't have that industry experience. They also weren't paying me for a head designer (laughs) but that's the that's the role they threw me in and I was the only designer there and I was pulling in millions of dollars in product I was sitting in on buying meetings I was um designing full collections for multiple brands and these these clothing items were sold in stores like Burlington Coat Factory Dots Wet Seal I had full lines for Cookies Kids which is very New York I don't think that anyone else has like cookies but um like I was designing full on collections and going on buying trips and spending lots of money and making lots of money for, you know, other companies. And once I left that job, I went to a company called Fetch for Pets and I was designing for companies like Barbie and Marvel DC and Hot Wheels. So I had like a bunch of licensing deals and that's pretty much what I did. Like, so I worked corporate a few years after college oh, wow. and then Interesting. quit. <laughs> Wait, so, okay, before we get into the quitting, now, for that last company, were you designing the fashion for the toys? I'm, I'm confused. No, I was designing the fashion for the pets. So you would actually, um, I would get like a folder on my desk and it would be like, this is what Barbie wants. Make sure you use their colors and their logos and then design. Okay. And so I would design puppy shirts, puppy pants, puppy dresses. And I would just, I would be, you know, responsible for making sure that it identified with the Barbie brand. Okay. Yeah. So I had lots of brands under my my belt and that's what I did. So what made you quit? Um, One, I didn't ever like being the only in my office. And that was the case often. Well, actually, every single corporate job that I've had, I I have always been the only. The only black woman or the only woman? Only black woman. Okay. Um, and in the first corporate position that I had, I was the only designer. So there was no one else in my um, department. And I was working for a bunch of Jewish men who built a brand um, targeted towards Black and Hispanic women. And um, I don't know whether they were intentional about some of the things that they've said to me, but I remember um, them asking me to try on jeans. And I'm like, you need to hire a fit model. (laughs) I'm not about to put on these jeans so you can, you know, make comments about my body type. Like, this is not even, you didn't do this before I got here. Don't do this today. And so, you know, it made me very uncomfortable to to always have to defend myself and know that I couldn't even have anyone else, you know, looking out for me. Like, I I had to speak up. There was no, there was no like, oh, someone might say something tomorrow. Like, you you have no choice. Wow. Um, 
And the last job, me leaving was because I was working really, really hard on Pantora. I was working really, really hard to get along with people in, a, in my work space that said really obnoxious things to me. It just, I, I wasn't comfortable. And I probably could have held out a little longer because I was borderline depressed and broke post post I'm not graduating, post leaving. But yeah, I couldn't, I don't think I could have done it anymore. They would say really interesting things. They would dig up information about my background. I remember getting pulled into the office because I took the day off. And I remember that they must have saw me on TV and then they did a bunch of research. And when I went back to work the next day, they were like, well, you could have told us this is what you were doing. And I'm like, I'm not obligated to do that. Like, I'm not obligated to tell you what it is that I'm doing. And it wasn't even my higher up that pulled me into the office to do this. And I was just like, this is, if this is what is acceptable here, then this is not a place for me. Wow. That is insane. That is insane that you had to go through all of that. That is really just unsettling. So I'm glad that you left, but I know it wasn't an easy decision. So let's talk about those first few days out. Like once the anger faded away and you know, the, the feeling of, yeah, I did the right thing. Um, how did you make the transition and start earning money on your own? Enough to cover you. Yeah. Enough to cover me. So um, for the most part, I knew how to make money. I didn't necessarily know how to make the same amount that I was making corporate-wise, but I, I had an idea of how to make money. So money was never really big to me because I enjoyed doing what it, what it was that I was doing, but I also had checks coming in from somewhere else. So now I needed to figure out how to make do with just the money that I made from Pantora. That transition was interesting because I started just kind of dialing all my clients like, hey, do you have an event to go to? I can make you something. Um, Most of them were really receptive, but I realized that at some point, like put your pride to the side and get to work. And that is what I had to do. You had to literally start calling, knocking on doors. Yeah, I was calling people like, hey, do you need a dress? I know your birthday is coming up. (laughs) It was so ridiculous. And I actually opened the store that summer. So like a lot had transpired. I spent a lot of time sitting on my couch with my dog, just trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was sad. Like I didn't know what I was sad about, but I was definitely sad. And I wasn't sad about not working corporate, but I don't think I had a clear idea of what it is that I wanted to do. And I constantly say that... um, old habits die hard. And I built a, I built my company when I was 16 and I basically been building on top of bad habits. Like you don't have good habits at 16. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of unlearning that I've been doing in order to, you know, scale my business, but it's just a lot of bad habits that you have to build on top of and figure out like, Oh, this is not the way this is supposed to go. I can only imagine because, okay. So you talk about starting your business at 16 and I'm really curious what that looks like. Does that mean that people, you have up a website, you design for people, but it's more informal where people are reaching out to you. You're sending them an invoice or accepting cash. Like what does that look like when you say you started your business at 16? So when I was 16, I took my first order for um, Sweet 16 dresses and it was a classmate who ordered a court. I don't even think I understood the idea of a court. A court has like eight girls, eight boys. Okay. And I, she asked me to make her dresses. She's like, oh, Andrew knows how to make dresses now. Did I really? That's questionable. <laughs> I don't know if I knew how to make dresses. I definitely like made things for myself. My own Sweet 16 party had like a fashion show. But did I know how to make dresses at 16 that were worth paying for? Somebody paid for them. I was paid. Um, And then I was just like, oh, I got a lot of money at one time. I'm going to keep doing this. And so, you know, I took prom orders. I took Sweet 16 orders. I made really fly bandana skirts. (laughs) And, you know, I just built off of that. But I didn't have a website. I remember my first business card. Um, I might have been like 17 when I got it. And it was a picture of myself on the on the card with like my phone number and address. Absolutely ridiculous. Like you don't do that. <laughs> I know, like here's my number. Here's where I live. Yeah, like, I, <laughs> you know, people don't tell you these things. I didn't necessarily have someone to say, don't do it like this. Right. I just was like, oh, people need to know how to find me. Let me make a business card. And it was, I remember I did it on Vistaprint. And 
I remember that business card. I was wearing a teal ruffle dress that I had made, and I thought it was a really good idea to post my picture on it. Just bad. It was bad. <laughs> so bad. Okay, so now we're in the unlearning process. So, you know, back to you've just quit your job. You said you opened a store that summer. Yes. Was this a physical location in Brooklyn? Yes. How, how did that work? So um, I had went away um, and did like this fake reality show. And when I came, I did not win. I, I should have won. And I, I will say that every time I'm ever asked about <laughs> this, I should have won. <laughs> was, it, was it a fashion reality show? It was. Okay. It never made it to TV. Uh, thank God. Okay, okay. Thank God. Because they had me like doing a fake Jamaican accent. <gasps> Listen, your life is like a movie. I can't even, I can't even take it. It's so bizarre. I think about some of the things that I did. Uh, I I just had, I had really bad theories. Uh And so I can get into that. Like I just had really bad theories about like age and doing what I needed to do by a certain age and which I don't believe in anymore, but I just had, it's not a good mindset to have. Um, But I... I went away and did this show for two weeks. I came back. I didn't win. And I was like, okay, so what now? And I was like, open a store. And I didn't have any money. I checked my bank account. I was like, okay, that's not going to work. So so I did a bunch of like vending opportunities. Every weekend, my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he would like drop me off to do these weekend vending events. And I would be making like product the whole week to go sell during the weekend. So I was making bodycon dresses, these things called cocoons that I created. And then I like started posting them on Instagram and I'm like, sell, sell, sell. We need to push, push everything. This is when Instagram was kind of new because it was definitely like six, seven years ago. And every weekend I would just replenish. Some weekends were terrible. I wouldn't make any money. And that means I just spent money to, you know, host that pop up. And some weekends were better where I would make a couple hundred dollars, but every single cent I saved, I walked into um, a meeting with my potential landlords and I was late and I was, I got soaking wet in a random flash storm. I had just taken my dog to the groomers and we walked into a meeting, both the dog and myself wet. And my landlords go, you're late. And I'm like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Like, I finally got a meeting with these guys. They might give me a space. And here I am soaking wet with, with a dog in my lap. And they had way more sympathy for the dog than myself. <laughs> so these, <laughs> these were prospective landlords at this time. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, you know, we had a decent meeting. They offered to take me home. I hopped in their car and they started grilling me. Oh, where do you live? Do your parents own property? Is this your, you know, first space? What do they own? Do they have assets? And they weren't asking me that way, but I realized later that their intent was to find out more information and to figure out how I was going to be able to pay my rent. Okay. So they were screening you based on you having the cash up front and your credit score or what? Before you got in the car. Well, cash up front and my credit score. Both of those things um, were kind of iffy. Credit score wasn't terrible for a 23-year-old, but it definitely wasn't like amazing. It's not the credit score I have today. (laughs) But, um, and cash didn't exist. I think I started my business off $4,000 cash and a $4,000 loan. So it wasn't much money at all. And most of that money went up for the, you know, the security deposit and the first month rent. What made you want to open a physical location? So I had been doing bridal, but I was doing it online via Etsy and email. And when people found me, I would, this is like, Skype was fairly new. So I was sending sketches back and they were sending deposits via PayPal. And I remember that I would ask for pictures. And, you know, once people get married, they don't remember to send you photos. But six months down the line, they might say, oh, I didn't get a photo. Or I might have been stalking them and I find a picture of them in my dress and they weren't black women. They were always white women. And the the bride that you thought was black because her name was Jamila, like she wasn't black. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, dang, I I need to see me in these dresses. And I didn't have like real life examples of that. I think at that point, by the time I opened the store, I might have had two black brides under my belt, two or three. And I had done a good amount of wedding dresses at that point. And I was just like, you know, the narrative is that we don't get married or we don't stay married. And I was like, I need to change this. I need somewhere where women can come and feel safe. And at that time, I didn't realize that that was like really my objective. But I knew that I wanted to open a store where black women could come. Why do you think you gravitated to bridal out of everything that you created? You know, body con dresses and all this stuff. Why? Why weddings? 
I love details. And, and bridal people can pay you for them. Like, they can justify paying you for the details because I couldn't do them for free. And I knew that. I was burning myself out trying to do all these details in dresses that, you know, didn't make me any money. It made me joy and that was it. And I really loved the construction of bridal gowns, like the boning and the beading and the lace work. Just being able to think of something really unique that somebody who will only potentially wear this dress once will understand. Like they want all the details jam-packed in this one dress because they're only ever going to get to wear it one time and they don't want to miss anything. And so that's why I gravitated towards bridal. I really have a love for construction. Okay. Now, back to opening up this space. So at that time, you said it was 4,000 cash, 4,000 loan to open up a spot, a physical location. Like that sounds really... Good. I mean, I know this was six, seven years ago. Um, where where exactly was it? It was on the corner of Rogers and President Street. And just to be clear, that's not how much it costs. That's what I had. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. I applied for an $8,000 loan because I knew that's all that I possibly could get. Uh-huh. And the loan officers wrote me back and was just like, listen, we can't give you eight. We could give you four. And I was like, I'll take it. (laughs) So how did you convince the landlords? They told me they had never met anybody more passionate than I am. And they were really nice to me. They tried to work with me. And I told them, like, you know, I will work. I'll work for you. Does your wife need a dress? Like, listen, I, I was super convincing. And they told me they were like, we have a lot of faith in you. This is not something we would typically do because you don't have the cash in the bank. And I understood that they were taking a bet on me based on what I was saying to them. And I don't like to prove people wrong. Like, I didn't want them to be like, dang, she really messed us up here. We could have had anybody in this space but her. So they took a bet on me. So how did you start to market and promote your bridal salon and get people in the doors? I think that's when like Instagram just like happened. So I might have been like a year in on Instagram. So it was kind of like, look, we have dresses, share, share, share. And then it was word of mouth. Um, And that first year was hard. We didn't really make many wedding dresses that first year, but I realized that the first year I couldn't sustain just on wedding dresses. So anybody who wanted a dress, we took the order. So we had prom. We don't do prom anymore, but um, we had prom. We did bridesmaids dresses. I remember one month I was trying to figure out where the rent money was coming from. And people think that opening a store is just rent money. It's rent. It's insurance. It's um, light bills. Like there's a lot that you have to pay for. And I was trying to figure out where the money was coming from. And at that time, I know my mom probably gave me a month rent. And I refused to tell her that I I might need another month because I didn't ask her for the first month, the set of money that she gave me. But she kind of knew that I probably needed it. And I remember just sitting there like, I don't know where this money's going to come from. I'm going to figure it out, but I don't know exactly like where it's coming from. And we had an appointment in the system that said, four bridesmaids or eight bridesmaids, like a, a weird number. And I said, who wrote this? Like this, that, this, this appointment doesn't make any sense. Um, she's not going to get all these people here. People don't bring all their bridesmaids. And I remember sitting there that Saturday and I was doing something in the back of the store and I turned around and there were four people at my door. I'm like, wow, she got like four out of eight here. Good job. And I went to go get water. And then all of a sudden there were eight people in my store. I'm like, wow, she got all eight of her bridesmaids here. That's crazy. And she was like, oh, the rest are coming. I'm like, the, the rest. rest. <laughs> so, so I dodge into the bathroom and I'm calling like my boyfriend at the time. And I'm like, I need chairs. I need water. I need paper. Bring things. Hurry up. Help me. Bring all the things. <laughs> And then I blink and there's 12 people in the store. And I'm like, like, who are these people? Do you know, by the time the appointment had like fully started, she had 27 people in her wedding. Are you serious? Yes. Was this and a celebrity? I, Was this, I mean. No, not a celebrity. I don't know where this woman came from, but she does not know that like God sent her to me. Mm. <laughs> like I needed, I needed that. Because I would, I don't want to necessarily say I was low on confidence, but like low on money and low on appointments in the in the system, like it's a, that's not a good mix to pay your rent. And she walked in, and all of okay, I don't think you, I, I got to set this up for you. All of them had their money to pay. That's what? <laughs> <laughs> this is first of all, I am so impressed by this bride having. Listen, we know weddings are hard. I only have four bridesmaids because I was like, I can't deal with more than yeah. four people. I. I 
I don't, if I do kudos. it again, I, I can tell you I might not have any. <laughs> <laughs> so for her to have them come, money in here, that is amazing. It was so impressive. And I was a little bit stressed out because each person had a different dress. So it wasn't like I'm making the same dress 27 times. Was it the same color at least? or It was the same color, but okay. like some people had different fabric, but Got like it. I didn't care. Like they gave me money that day. And so <laughs> I'm like, sketching each person is like sitting down and i'm walking over to them and i'm giving them all of 60 seconds to sketch what do you want you want a long dress with a split okay great is it off the shoulder no shoulders are we doing sweetheart okay boom here's your sketch hold that next (laughs) i was writing prices down on the back of their sketch like hold that hold that hold that just give me half of that when you're ready and i had a couple thousand dollars in my hand by the time i finished that appointment hey guys it's nikayla here with a quick word from our sponsor So the number one question I get about side hustling is how do I get started? And the other day I decided to kind of take inventory of what I was doing in my early days of side hustling. How did I get started with Side Hustle Pro? And the biggest thing that stood out to me is that I was always investing in skill and personal development. And I like to do just in time learning. So when I was ready to do something new or try something else, I would invest in a class to learn that skill and then practice implementing it. So the rest of my development and learning came from my actual experience. So I highly recommend you do the same. What is it that you wanna do? Do you wanna finally put up your website? Then head over to Skillshare and take a class on putting up your website. Do you want to get started with social media and you're not sure how to start? Head over to Skillshare and start taking some classes. Skillshare is so great because it's an online learning community. It has over 25,000 classes in anything you can think of from photography to entrepreneurship, even podcasting. And right now they are offering a special offer just for Side Hustle Pro listeners. You can get two months of unlimited access to Skillshare for free. Imagine what you can do in two months, how many classes you can take. But remember to do the implementation piece, all right? So head over to Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. That's Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro to get started with your two free months and one more time, that's Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. What did that moment do for your business? I, I just feel like that is one of those pivotal moments where there's no looking back, where you realize like this is like, I'm never I, going back. I realize I got this. Like yeah. I, I have a lot of confidence in what it is that I do most times, Um But that was one of those times where I was just like, I got this. And when you think that you don't, there are ways to figure it out. And I know that I didn't necessarily figure it out in that moment, but the situation figured itself out. And do you know how they found you? Was it through Instagram? I don't know how they found me. I don't remember. It was probably via Instagram or word of mouth, like one of those two things. Mm Mm-hmm. And so today, you know, years in, how do you approach marketing? Because it it has to be a competitive industry. I mean, there are just so many people who default think I'm going to go to X shop or, you know, I want to have that experience I saw on TV. Um, well, that's the combat. That's right. The combat how, right how do you, yeah. one, stand out in the bridal gown industry and then two, market? Um, well, right now we try to be as authentic as we possibly can. Um, I think when I first started, I wanted anyone to buy a dress. Like I had an appreciation for black women, but anybody's money would do. (laughs) Um, But today our goal has kind of shifted to community. Like while we want to offer amazing dresses, we want to do it in a way where we can lift up our community. And I think that that's how we've been marketing ourselves is um, creating a safe space for black women and just women of color who are of different shapes sizes and backgrounds to be able to come here and shop confidently. And so we push that. Um, I, I wouldn't call it an agenda, but we push that um, mission and we hashtag black and in bridal. <laughs> we let people know that we exist because people are specifically looking for us. So we market via Instagram um, and Facebook and we do lots of Facebook ads. We rely on referrals as well. We try to make sure that our clients are having great experiences with us. And um, word of mouth is super, super important. But, you know, brand authenticity is is just as important. Absolutely. And how do you think about starting off a new year, for example, as a designer, are you 
designing a certain number of dresses for that year? Are you doing custom plus there are certain select dresses that people can also purchase and have it, you know, altered to fit them? How does that work? So for the most part, we release a collection every year and brides are buying from that collection. They may make slight modifications, but um, our custom work, we do a lot of custom dresses, but it's not what it once was. Tantor was built off of custom dresses, Um, but that's not the case anymore. It's hard to do because I can't physically be in the store every single day. And we have retailers. So we have our dresses are sold throughout the country in other bridal stores. That's amazing. I love that. It is such a rewarding feeling to know that people are looking for something that you have designed outside of where you live. Like it brings me such joy when brides travel here. We have brides from Liberia, Australia, um, like they're coming from very, very far places to get a Pantora dress. Like it is a feeling that like I don't know how to replicate. That is amazing. And I'm so, so happy for you. Um, and to know that as well, that you are in other retailers. Now, one thing you mentioned stood out to me. You said you can't physically be in the store every single day. What was that transition like from everyone expecting Andrea to design me a custom gown to saying this is our collection and Andrea might not be present that day that you come to the store. Um, We eased it in, but can I tell you, it's not easy. Yeah. To this day is still very difficult because I think clients have the expectation that I'm just here every day. And um, a couple of years ago, I realized how unfair that was to me because I was working seven days a week and clocking in anywhere between 10 and 18 hours a day. And I made myself sick. And I remember it's uh, something that one of my high school teachers told me. She said, if you operate like this, you're going to hate what you do. And she told me that in high school because I wasn't charging enough money for what it was that I was doing. She's like, you're going to hate this. And yes. I remember deciding I was going to quit in high school because of, you know, probably not making enough. And I started to hate it. I started to resent the fact that my presence was required and it wasn't even required by my staff. It was required by the client. And I had to tell myself, you know, you get to dictate how this business is run and, you know, everybody will not like it. And and being okay with that, because I think that was the difficult part is people are going to be bad and I'm going to be okay with them being upset. To this day, I'm not okay with them being upset. I like when everyone is happy. <laughs> yes. I love who does I, like, it. Right. I get so much stress when people go, oh, I thought Andrew's going to be here. But why did you think that? Because no, there is nowhere online or anywhere that tells you that it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> we try to manage right. expectations. Listen, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just something that will take time, but no other place do you go to try on wedding dresses and the designer comes out, you know, like that just doesn't happen. That's not part of the experience, guys. It's um. not. And I do like, don't get me wrong. I love to be here. Right. But I right, like to right. manage expectations yes. and I don't like people to think that like I am required to be here because the staff that I have, I have hired people who have great intentions. Like I hire intentions first mm-hmm. and then talent. So I have staff who they they are direct reflections of who I am and who, what I've poured into this business. And most of my brides get that. Um, there's not many who don't. Um, and the the ones who don't, they they haven't they don't purchase. And I, I received like angry emails. Well, no one told me that Andrea wasn't going to be here until I got here and I asked for her. Well, that's because you decided that I was going to be here. You never asked. You thought that you own me. And it's unfortunate because I know that it comes from a good place. I know that they want me here because they enjoy what I put out or what they think that I am. But I don't think that they always see that, like, I'm a person and I need time, too. Yes. And that, like, their wedding day is not the center of your world because you have thousands of women who have wedding days this year. Yes. And and we try to make them feel like they're the only. But the truth of the matter is is that they're not the only person getting married. Yes. And that, that gets hard because... We want them to have the experience that they expect. But the problem is that people create storylines and they stick, they stick to them. <laughs> the storyline, yes. <laughs> so speaking of hiring one, how did you begin to do that? Because I can imagine with something that is so closely tied to your name, how do you ensure that it continues to have your vision while also taking some of that work off your plate to like, design every single collection to do every single thing yourself? So I still design every collection. I just don't make it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, But the first person I always, I don't want to say always, I would say 
around 22, 21, I, I hired my first um, seamstress. And um, she worked closely with me for years. And my best friend, Kristen, she helped me whenever she could. She actually interviewed me in high school and asked me what I wanted to do between then and 25. And I told her I wanted to open a bridal store. And on the day that I opened up the bridal store, she pulls out the interview from our high school newspaper and she goes, you did it, sis. Wow. (laughs) Oh, now that's a friend. Ain't it? Like, no, this girl worked for me for free for years. And I remember the day I called her and said, I can hire you and pay you. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember that day so vividly. She was like, wait, I'm about to get a check. (laughs) That is a milestone. (laughs) Yes, I, I remember I posted it on Facebook, like... It is such a rewarding feeling to be able to not just hire someone, but hire someone who has had your back for all of these years and like real support and not the type of support that she owed me, but the Mm -hmm. type of support that she said, as your friend, I'm going to make sure you have. She was head of customer service. Um, She would sit in the store and just wait for clients to come, even if we had not a person come in. But she was just that, you know, that person that even I could vent to someone who would like officially understand what it is that I'm going through just because she was able to see it. That is priceless right yeah. there. Yeah. And what was the process of getting Pantora designs in other bridal salons all across the country? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, absolutely terrible. Being Black and in bridal is something that I'm still working on. Mm. And, um, I, like, we can tap in on the the retreat and I can tell you even, like, how that helped me. But I remember um, I was working bridal market, which is a market for retailers to look at the collections of designers and decide if they're going to have them in their store. Uh-huh. And I was working for a few other brands and I was going to meet with um, a store called Little Creek Bridal and she was going to come to my basement apartment because that is where I started Pantora Bridal in my basement apartment. And um, she came and she looked at my dresses and she was like, I like these, I'll, I'll get them. But she never actually put them in the store. I still, I still am really close with her to this day. She still doesn't have my dresses in her store. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, she came and she gave me some hope. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to market one year. I think maybe two years later, I went to bridal market and I was the only black designer. We walked that entire market, not another black designer there. And I saw some black retailers. They came and whispered to me, you know, maybe you should put someone else in your booth. Wow. And I was just like, Whoa. I hate hearing stuff like that. You know, that's yeah. advice. People are like, oh, maybe you should have a, a, a white co-founder. You'll go farther. Yeah. Like, you know, and it, it's bad because it comes from a good place. Right. Because it comes from them wanting you to succeed. Right. Mm-hmm. But at what cost? And I was just like, whoa, that's not how I want to do this thing. And if that, if I have to do it like that, I don't want it. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I got it because I really do think that most people operate off of good intentions, but sometimes their intentions fall short. Like, it is what it is. And um, I had some interest, not real interest, but people saying, oh, this is nice. Maybe, maybe you should send us like a lookbook. <laughs> like that was, that was what like interest looked like to me at the time. Okay. And then I said, you know what, let's try it again. Went back the following year. And I remember one store hyped me up and they were like, we're going to book your flight. Um, you can come to a trunk show. These are the styles you want. Oh my gosh, you're so cute. We just, we, we would love these dresses in our store. You're like the black Hallie page. And I was just like, I don't know what the hell that means, but are they writing a check? <laughs> like, are, like, are we going to have our dresses in their store? They were like, make sure we follow up. We finished market and they acted like they didn't know who I was. They, ne- they acted like they never met me. No, we don't wow. remember you. I was like, dang. And then I realized what they meant when they said, like, I'm like the Black Hallie Page. I was like, I don't want to be like the Black Hallie Page. I want to be like Andrea Pitter. Like, I don't understand why I had to be you know, someone else. Yeah, you had to be framed in the context of someone else to be seen as valuable. And Exactly. You know, a lot of people do that across industries. And that's why I think a lot of founders pitch that way. Like, we're like the ex of this or blah, blah, blah. To help people who only think within boxes and things they understand to embrace you. Mm Mm-hmm. But so, but you are in stores though. So what finally helped you to kind of break through and, and to make some progress? I stopped looking. I said, if it's for me, it will find me. I'm going to actively do the work to scale my brand the way that we're able to do it now. And if that's what it's supposed to be, it will be. Um, my first official retailer 
was soliloquy, but that was like an interesting one because I just kind of forced myself on her. I was like, hey, I sent you dresses, put them in your store. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so she wasn't actually like an official retailer because she didn't, we didn't follow the model that um, I have right now. But I have a store called Lux Bridal um, in Nashville. And she wrote me and she said, I'm opening a store. What are your minimums? What can we do to get this ball rolling? And I think at the time I was probably preparing to get married. And I'd like, I didn't even want to hear someone tell me no. And so I kind of entertained her, kind of didn't. And then when she like kept writing, I was just like, oh, she's serious. She wants these dresses. And I realized that she was a black bridal owner. She, well, she hadn't opened her store yet. And I said, she's going to face some of the hardships that I have. Lack of information, lack of you know, employees, like lack of people wanting to support her because she is black. And, you know, I spoke to her and we created a very valuable relationship where I give her insight and she gives me insight. And, you know, we worked on a way for our dresses to get in her store. It wasn't standard. It was like, we didn't go about it the, the traditional way, but we made something that works for both of our businesses. And she was the first store to trust my business not just for the designs, because I think a lot of people will say, oh, I love their designs, but, you know, I'm not sure about working with a black business. And we hear that a lot. And she was the first store that said, despite everything, I want your dresses in. And then we started to get lots of requests. And so and we started to really research and say, no, this is not a good fit for us. These people don't understand our body types. And when I say these people, I don't mean like these people. <laughs> but, but, you know, people who didn't understand like our dresses, uh-huh. they would call, they go, oh, it looks like your dresses, um, they sell really well. Can we get them in our store? And I was like, I don't want that to be the reason people buy our dresses. I want them to understand what our brand is about. It's about, you know, fitting the hard to fit silhouettes, the ones that people don't understand because they're not represented in the mainstream. It's about understanding like big booties matter. <laughs> so, so we started to, um, a lot of stores started to gravitate towards us and we just, we screen them right now. And so we're in five stores right now and um, we're growing, but it's been, it has been an interesting process because we are learning as we go. There is no information for us. People are not going to give you information on how to get into um, stores because bridal does not work like a traditional um, wholesale versus retail relationship. And how does that work when you create a collection, right? You don't, you're in the process of working out more stores. So how do you manufacture and, and prepare to have enough stock to even give the stores? So majority of our Pantora bridal collection is made in-house. I have two lines. So I launched another line uh, shortly after I got married because I felt like I wanted to offer dresses within a certain price point for brides who came in and they didn't necessarily see what they wanted for what they had in their pocketbooks. And that collection is called the Andrea Campbell Collection. That is priced more moderately. And those dresses are made overseas. And our Pantora bridal collection, majority of them are, are made here. We might be making that switch. But they're made in-house. And um, we just let the stores know this is what you can have. Some of the dresses are not sold in our retail stores. But for the most part, most of them are. But we're working on different things to figure out how to get our dresses in the hands of everyone that wants one. Okay. And that means exploring lots of different avenues, whether they're made in-house, whether they're made overseas or still in New York with a smaller production factory that's not necessarily like in our showroom. Well, good problems to have to think through. So what did you learn on the My Taught You Retreat that you wanted to highlight here? So I I never get checked, right? No one checks me because generally I'm the boss. Even though I'm not the boss at Pantora Bridal, I'm just the designer. I've thrown in my boss hat. Um, uh-huh. My league, like, let me know about myself, too, in the best way possible. But Courtney Adelaide, I remember asking her, you know, how do I get other bridal brands to come? Like, I'm on this journey to bridge a gap, but I can't bridge a gap by myself. There's no other Black bridal designers at the forefront of this industry. Um, Amstala recently passed away. Um, She was Ethiopian and she was the only one. And I feel like when it comes to bridging a gap, like how does that gap get bridged by one person or one business? Like it doesn't. And I asked her, how do I get these other designers to understand that there's room for us all and to come? And she was just like, sis, you mean to tell me that you're the only one doing what you're doing and you're worried about how to get get other people to do it? I don't understand. What's your problem? (laughs) 
Courtney cracks me up. Oh my gosh. Yes, she does. And you know, you know, at first I was like, I don't think she understood what I was saying. And I was like, no, she understood very well. She said, figure it out, do it well, and then figure out how you can be of benefit to your community. Yes. And so I was just like, oh, she just politely checked me. And I sat in um, my room and I just like sat there silently staring at the ceiling like, I get it, but I don't get it because I don't ever want to be the only. There's room for everybody. Right. But... You know, I do get the idea of saying, do it well, because if you do it well, people can see that there's opportunity for them. Exactly. And someone needs to go first, too. So I don't know if this was part of your epiphany, but it sounds to me like there's a part of you. You tell yourself that you want to do it together with other people. Like there's this room and we need to band together to break through this obstacle. However, it kind of is an excuse for you not to do everything that you can be doing because you're you're like, oh, I, I, I need this team. But actually, like, keep on doing what you're doing because you're already doing so many amazing things. And then, yeah, like Courtney said, then you can teach people because they need they're going to need to know, oh, my God, Andrea, how did you do it? And that's how yeah. you bring us all along Yep, in those spaces. Hey. Absolutely. And I, I had to go up to her and like, I'm like, you, 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 do you realize like you broke me? I don't like to be broken. And here I am like crying in, in her face at my league's birthday party. <laughs> Somebody come gather me. <laughs> just, just team too much. <laughs> that was one of the things that was so great about that experience is because a lot of us, we don't have anybody else to to ask. We're, we're literally the only ones doing it. So to be in yeah. a space where someone might not be a bridal expert or whatever, but they're doing business at a, at a different level than us. And so they just have a different perspective. So finally, you have someone that you could ask. You know, I've had people in my family try to give me advice, but like they're not on the entrepreneurial road. So it's really hard. And it's hard to explain that to them that, uh, you know, I respect your opinion, but Right now, at this particular moment, it's not that valid to me. Yeah, I had to stop asking family because I yeah. remember my family would tell me that my prices were too high. And then now when they, <laughs> I'm like, so like, do you know how hard I work? Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, I'm glad you had that epiphany. And now before we go into the lightning round, I'd love to know what has been your experience on the money side of things? So a lot of people lose money for years and years in their business, especially just building something like your building. So what has been your experience? How did you ensure your business would do more than break even? So we broke even for quite some time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so I, I probably view things a little bit differently when it comes to like breaking even in profit. Uh-huh. I invest back into my community by making sure that I hire women of color who look like me and that can represent my business. So breaking even to me is a good thing, provided that I employed more people. Like I... I'm constantly looking for a reason to hire somebody. But as far as like making sure that we had money to operate and to, you know, run a successful business, I looked for holes. Okay, how many brides are coming into the store with with a certain budget and we can't we don't have anything for them? Let's create something new because obviously this client exists. So every time there's a problem, I'm like, let's fix it. Let's offer this. Pantora Mini exists because I kept getting these, you know, small orders for fabulous children's dresses. And I was just like, why don't we have a line? We're probably, people don't even know that we do this. Let's create a Pantora mini line. And then now we have a Pantora mini store. So it's constantly like, okay, people are asking for something, give it to them. And it's pretty much been beneficial. It's making sure that, you know, we order things on time so that we're not spending extra money on expedite shipping or making sure that a lot of the work happens when we're not in busy season so that everyone's not getting like time and a half because they're clocking in a hundred hours a week. But it's like really good money management and make sure, making sure we're not overspending, um, having meetings about sales and understanding that this week might have been slow. Next week has to be better. Or, you know, did we hit our monthly goal in the first week of the month? So it's having open conversation about money with my team. I don't think most teams, um, most employees don't have a, a understanding of like the money that is coming in um, or the money that's going out. And we have pretty open dialogue about about money here. Now, that's interesting that you said that about breaking even. But um, at some point, 
I'm sure you you want to do more than that. I, I mean, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. And what your ultimate goals are for? Well, we make profit. We make okay. profit here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we make profit um, here. But I just wanted to like elaborate on that because right. I could like in the first couple of years I could have made more than just breaking even. Got it, right. Got it. I could have I could have made more, yeah. but. Yeah, I wanted to employ people. (laughs) But no, so we definitely make um, a profit, but I'm constantly just putting that profit um, back into creating other other businesses or other things. But um, no, creating profit is to understand exactly who your customer is and building off of that. Like we weren't offering veils for such a long time. It was just custom veils. And now we offer veils. It's like creating product that your, your existing customer actually wants. Yes. Like there's money there. You just have to actually figure out how to get it. Very important points. And I'm glad that you bring that up about, you know, one, of course, investing back into your business because you can't continue to grow if if you don't have the staff to, to equip you to build and do all these other roles and to also identify opportunities to create new verticals of your, your business. That makes sense because sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people are on a chase for multiple revenue streams or to sell more things. And they're not always smart about it. So I think, you know, you've been really smart about it and only creating what is needed by your person, not the entire industry, but what is your person asking for? What are you seeing in your salon when people come in? So kudos to you. And charging your actual worth yes. too many times. Yes. We're not black women are not charging enough Mm-mm. across the board. Like they're just not charging enough or or we're overcharging because of what other people are charging. Right. Um, and, and so I, I can explain it as if we all if you sell a, a comb and you're selling your comb at five dollars and someone else is selling their comb at one dollar, like at the end of the day, it is still a comb. So and it's the same comb, especially if it's the same comb. You, you need to be competing. But if you're selling a product that no one else sells, you need to sell it for what it is worth. And I think that black women are so creative and we have so many, um, you know, business ventures and just products in general that we don't charge for because we go, well, it only took me three hours to do this. Right. Mm. But did it take you 10 years of education, 10 years of education and internship? Mm -hmm. Like who's paying for that? Yeah. And we don't do that enough. Like look at our complete value. The skill that's going into this. Right. Right. It's not just like you sat down and you sewed this and you just learned how to do this today. Yeah. I learned that your complete skill set. After year one is when I learned that because I like my sister's an accountant and she went over my numbers and she said, you're going to go broke next year. You're not going to have enough money to keep this business open because all you are charging for is the time it took you. You're not charging for the time it took you to research what fabric to use or, you know, charging for the, the shipping of the fabric for it to get here. Like there's so much you're not, you're not charging for your light bills. You're not charge, like you're not charging for the space it takes to create these things. And she's like, all you're charging is your what you want to make per hour. She's like, you're going to go under. You, th- this will not exist next year. Amen. Yeah. I'm so glad you have her. I'm so glad, um, yeah. you know, that is a godsend having an accountant. So, no, she's not my accountant anymore. Well, she's just that, she's she just has a accountant. That education, <laughs> right, right, right. A accountant, like I respect them. She's like, so, make so that much. very clear. I am not your accountant. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you're not getting this for free, sis. But yes, yes. All right. So now we're going to jump into the lightning round. You just answered the very first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Yes. Alrighty. So number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your business? that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Um, Brooklyn Cooperative Bank, it's a it's a, a credit union. That's what it is, credit union. They gave me my first loan to open Pants for a Bridal. Oh, okay. Um, number two, what's been the best business book that you've read? Ooh, that, see, I'm more of a like blog reader. I'm a blog reader. Um, nope, but you know what? It's not a book, it's my leaks podcast. All right, we'll take it. Number three, <laughs> what is a non-negotiable part of your day? A non-negotiable part of my day, it's five minutes to myself in the morning. I need at least five minutes by myself. Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. Don't ask me for anything. Okay. And what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your business? Um, I wake up hungry every single morning. I have started my day doing research for the last couple of years. I've, I've increased my time doing research now, but I start my morning every day with doing some amount of time and research. Mm, love that. And then finally, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who have a skill, they want to be their own boss, but they're worried about not having a steady paycheck? Keep your steady paycheck until that 
your side hustle becomes more income than the check that you are getting. Keep all of your money. <laughs> Try to keep it. Hold on to that job as long as you can until you can't anymore. All right. And so where can people connect with you, get your expertise, follow your journey after this episode? My personal Instagram page is Andrea underscore Pitter Campbell. Um, you can follow me and my shenanigans there. Um, that's pretty much it right now. I am Pantora. My email. Um, Pantora Bridal, Instagram, www.pantorabridal.com. If you want to see what the team is um, doing and what the brand is doing, you can follow us there. All right, guys. And there you have it. Hey, hey, thanks for listening. Now stay connected in between episodes by texting Side Hustle Pro to 44222. You'll get my weekly Six Bullet Saturday newsletters where I share what I'm up to, what I'm reading, my business tip of the week, and resources to help you grow your side hustle. And I'm working behind the scenes on some live events, which my email list will get access to first. So make sure you're in the loop. Text Side Hustle Pro to 44222 or visit sidehustlepro.co slash SBS. Thank you.